0: Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingspodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Nachrichten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Gehe einfach zu amazon.de slash um noch mehr rund um Fitness und Gesundheit zu lernen. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. Klingt die Musik in deinen Ohren? Dann geht es dir wie uns. Bei Airbus bauen wir nicht einfach nur Flugzeuge. Wir haben eine Mission. Das heute mit dem Morgen zu verbinden. Du willst ein Teil davon werden? Das ist deine Chance. Wir suchen motivierte MitarbeiterInnen in vielen Bereichen. Jetzt bewerben unter erbus.com slash jobs und gemeinsam mit uns abheben. Ready for take-off? The global story with smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out more.
1: You're listening to Discovery from the BBC World Service. I'm Adam Hart, and this is Tooth and Claw, the series where I explore our complex and challenging relationships with Earth's greatest predators through the people. ...who have spent their lives studying, protecting and at times narrowly escaping them. Today's predator is the fastest land animal in the world. These slender spotted cats are built for speed. They have semi-retractable claws for good grip... ...a flexible spine and long tail for balance and manoeuvrability... ...and with rapid strides and quick tight turns to shift course in fast pursuit... ...they rely on their speed over brute strength when it comes to hunting... But with a shrinking population, this predator is listed as vulnerable. It's time to learn all about the cheetah. Joining us to discuss these high-speed specialists are Professor Sarah Durant from the Zoological Society of London. She's project leader of the Africa Rangewide Cheetah Conservation Initiative. And Vincent van der Merven, Director for the Metapopulation Initiative and Cheetah Metapopulation Coordinator for Southern Africa and India. Now, Sarah, let's start with you. On Tooth and Claw, we featured other big cats like lions, tigers and cougars. What makes the cheetah different from those other cats in terms of their behaviour?
2: So, as you already mentioned, cheetahs are the fastest animal on land and it's really worth contemplating that a bit because they can go in a straight line of 64 miles per hour or 103 kilometres per hour. So, if you think about that, and if you think about joining a slip road on the motorway, for example... A cheetah could actually overtake you. So this speed is quite mind-blowing and it's also really mind-blowing to see when you see cheetahs run in the wild as well. But cheetahs are not just fascinating for their speed. They've got a really fascinating behaviour and social ecology that's completely unlike any other mammal species that we know of. So the females have large home ranges. They range across big areas and then the males often have much smaller territories. So in the Serengeti, where I've done a lot of my work, the females range across 800 square kilometres, but the territorial males will only have territories of around about 50 square kilometres.
1: Well, that's kind of the opposite to what you find in things like tigers where it's the males with the big territory and the females with the smaller one how, how does that interact with their sort of social dynamics how does it work in the field with these different territory sizes
2: yes yeah, so that's exactly right so it's completely opposite to what we see in other cats where females have resource-based territories so these territories tend to be much smaller than the males because the males then will dominate one or two female territories Female cheetah do not have resource-based territories. They have large overlapping home ranges that overlap with other females, and they can often be seen in close proximity to other females. But the males hold these much smaller territories. So what we think is going on is that females have to be very mobile because they have to avoid the other large predators in the ecosystem. So, for example, you might have lions, spotted hyenas, all of which can out-compete a cheetah. So if a cheetah gets a kill, for example, and a spotted hyena or lion is around, they may lose their kill to those predators. But also, lions in particular may kill cheetah cubs. So if a female is going to successfully rear her cubs, she needs to be mobile to keep away from these other large predators in the ecosystem.
1: You're mentioning the females. I was wondering about the males as well. How do they work together?
2: So not only do we have these wacky inverse home range arrangement with cheetahs, but the males live in groups. So most male cheaters will live in small groups of two or three individuals, and these are stable, permanent, and we call them coalitions. These coalitions are quite egalitarian, so male cheaters will eat together, they'll hunt together, they'll groom together, and they'll live together for the rest of their lives. So if they're born brothers, they'll stay together for the rest of their lives but they may also pair up with unrelated males. So you've got this stable male sociality, which is quite rare in the absence of female sociality.
3: Now
1: let's bring in Vincent. Vincent, taking a step back from this sort of detail, do we know where the name cheetah actually comes from?
3: Yes, I believe it's a uh, Sanskrit word. So it originally comes from India, which means the spotted one. And yes, it's a pretty accurate description of, of the cheetah. <laughs> it is. How do they fit in with the other big cats in Africa
1: with leopard and lion? How are they related and how do they sit?
3: They're not actually related to the other uh, large cats in Asia and Africa. The closest relatives of cheetah reside in the Americas, uh, pumas and, and jaguarundi. In the last uh, one or two million years, they colonized Africa, but they actually are uh, totally unrelated to all other large cat species in Africa and Asia.
1: And we're talking about cheetahs as predators, so I guess we should turn our focus a little bit to prey. What sort of animals are they are they taking out when they're going out hunting? So
2: normally medium-sized antelope. In Serengeti, where I've worked a lot, they're uh, mainly taking gazelle. But in the woodland habitats, they'll take a wider variety of prey. So impala, reedbuck, bushbuck, diker. Uh, they do eat quite a lot of hares as well. So hares are important particularly for the adolescents when they're they're not that proficient at their hunting
1: and what about larger prey that we might more associate with things like lions are they able to uh, hunt wildebeest and zebra that sort of size
2: Yeah, so the males quite often hunt wildebeest. In Serengeti it's a migratory system so they're only really hunting wildebeest when the cheetahs and the migration coincide. But the males often prefer wildebeest if they're around, um, particularly the calves. So wildebeest can be a common component of the diet of the male cheetahs.
1: What is their relationship with other predators? So they sometimes prey themselves?
3: Yes, um, you know we we work with uh, seventy five protected areas across uh, Southern Africa and uh, in India now as well. More than uh, well, fifty one percent of our mortalities are due to lion, and nine percent due to leopard. We don't know exactly how many hyena kill because they kill a lot of cubs. So, yes, so we don't know what the historical relationship was with other predators that they um, coexisted with in Asia, like tigers and sloth bears and wolves and so on. But uh, yes, they are certainly in that regard um, the underdog, uh, the weaker of the large predators.
1: And we'll dig into some of the more complex relationships with people later. But for now, are cheetahs actually a threat to us
3: directly? Uh, No, not at all. Uh, In fact, uh, I'm not aware of a single attack uh, by a wild cheetah on human beings. It certainly is possible in in captive situations where cheetahs have lost fear of human beings. But, you know, we've had the odd isolated incidences from time to time where um, I believe farm workers have run from cheaters and these cheaters, they sort of chase, but they never pounce.
1: And Sarah, you mentioned earlier their amazing speed and you gave us that lovely image of sort of joining a a fast road. I mean, that's the sort of speed we're dealing with. But obviously everything comes with a compromise. Does being built for that incredible speed have any drawbacks for them?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's why they have such um, weak jaws and that's why they're not dangerous to people because uh, their head weight has to be kept extremely light so they can run fast. They also have these blunt claws which helps their running speed but that means that they're They don't have sharp claws and they don't have strong jaws so those two things reduce their danger to
1: humans. And I guess for ease of photography a lot of the images we see of cheetahs are hunting on sort of open plains but the only place I've ever seen a cheetah wild was in the Kruger National Park and it was in really heavily almost sort of uh, scrubland. Um, Do they hunt in sort of more complex environments or are they really very much creatures of open, open habitats?
2: They do hunt very well in bushy habitats so they live in a wide variety of habitats ranging from from the Sahara Desert through to quite thick bush. Cheetahs hunt through stalk which is often quite a long stalk um, where they try and get as close as possible before they initiate a really fast chase and they'll chase the prey over Round about two to four hundred meters, and then as they get close to the prey, they pull out their front paw with a very long dew claw that whacks the prey over to one side, and then they'll pile on top of the prey and kill it with a throat bite. And that is their typical hunting strategy. They don't always initiate a chase; they have to get quite close in order to catch up with the prey. But obviously, there's variation depending on the habitat. So if they're in the open plains. It's much easier for them to be seen and they have to stalk very carefully and they have to initiate chases from much further away on open plains habitats. But then they can make it up because they can run at top speed in those habitats. If they're in woodland habitats, they can operate much more on an ambush strategy and initiate chases from much closer and then they can often have much shorter hunts but they're slower hunts because of the obstacles due to the vegetation and trees.
1: Now Sarah you've spent thousands of hours out in the Serengeti observing cheetah. Is there any behaviour you've seen from them that people maybe wouldn't expect?
2: So one of the really unusual behaviours that we see in cheetahs is their ability to adopt unrelated cubs and that's something we don't see that often but we see it regularly enough to to know that this is this is part of cheetah biology so I was lucky enough to see an adoption start Um, I'd observed a a fairly young cub she was about eight months she was on her own and I was quite worried about her her mother was nowhere to be seen and she was in an area which is often frequented by a lot of cheetahs it was an area on the Serengeti plains in the wet season so there was a good chance you would meet other cheetahs. And sure enough, there was a family that came down, a mother with cubs of very similar age, two cubs, similar age, where she didn't see off the cub. The cub approached her, she came towards it. She didn't react really to the cub at all. The cub then just followed at a little distance. There was a little bit of antagonism with, with her cubs. This was a cheetah called Monique. And over a period of days, I watched this cub gradually get integrated in the family. At first, the cub was very hungry, but it couldn't join the kills because Monique's cubs would see her off. But gradually, over a period of days, it was able to first start eating after the cheetah family had left the kill and then start joining the family at the kill. So over three or four days, the family actually became integrated and the cub And the original cubs were were like one family. This cub was a little bit smaller, but otherwise you wouldn't be able to tell that they weren't a single family. And actually interesting, that particular female, practically every litter that she had, this is Monique, um, she adopted a cub. It's a really interesting and rare behaviour that's not seen in many other mammal species.
1: You're listening to Discovery from the BBC World Service. I'm Adam Hart and this is Tooth and Claw. We're talking about the fastest land animal in the world, the cheetah. And joining us are Professor Sarah Durant from the Zoological Society of London and Vincent van der Merwe from the Metapopulation Initiative. Now, we've been talking about cheetahs largely in Africa, and I think it comes as a surprise to many people to learn that there are populations of cheetahs outside of Africa. Vincent, could you give us a sort of overview of where we find these different populations of cheetahs, what their numbers
3: are and, and what sort of state they're in? Yes, um, so historically cheetahs occurred uh, right across uh, Africa, except for the more forested regions, uh, right across the Middle East, uh, northwards into the former Soviet Union, and eastwards all the way to India. Unfortunately, because there has been up to 13,000 years of agriculture taking place in the Middle East, Cheetah populations were uh, extirpated first in this part of the world. Today, if you look at the uh, remaining populations of, of cheetah in Asia, it's it's just one single population in Turan National Park in Iran of about uh, 12 to 20 individuals surviving. So historically, there would have been um, you know up to uh, 30,000, 40,000 cheetahs in Asia before agriculture started 13,000 years ago and today you have less than 20 individuals surviving in one population in Iran so they've been heavily impacted by human activities in in asia in africa we still have about uh, 7000 left uh, regardless they have been extirpated from almost 90% of their historical range in, in in africa so so yes it's been a tough time for for wild cheetah populations uh, in the Neolithic since humans started practising agriculture.
1: And on tooth and claw, we've come across the idea in species before, like brown bears, for example, of there being variation across a species um, across their range. Do we find any big differences between African and Asiatic cheetahs?
3: Yes, uh, certainly. I mean, the DNA analysis has been done and they've been separated for, uh, I believe, over 70,000 years. And uh, you can see there are outward observable differences in the appearance of not only Asiatic cheetahs and Southern African cheetahs, but also West African cheetahs and, and Southern and East African cheetahs. Southern and East African cheetahs are, are, look very similar because uh, there's no geographical barrier that would have separated them uh, in recent times, so so it's quite difficult to tell them apart. But it's very easy to spot a West African cheetah or even an Asiatic cheetah. They, they have... Uh, very clear-cut uh, outward observable appearances that are, are different from each other.
1: And what what are those features that you can spot them by?
3: Asiatic cheetahs are about 50% smaller than the uh, African counterparts. They are desert-adapted, they're much uh, thinner, much more lightweight. Uh, if you look at West African cheetahs, they are much paler, have a, a smaller spots, more uh, concise spots, compared to East and Southern African cheetahs, which are, a larger and and more orange brown in appearance and you 're painting a fairly
1: grim picture of cheetahs in terms of their populations across the world. Are any populations actually doing well or increasing
3: um Yes, at this point in time, uh, all uh, free roaming populations that 's unfenced populations all unfenced populations are in a state of decline or are some of them are stable. But the only population worldwide that's actually increasing in in, in number is the fenced metapopulation. So uh, cheetahs have been reintroduced into 75 protected areas that are uh, completely fenced. And uh, this has protected them from the uh, human effects, from agriculture, from poaching, from snaring, from decimation of prey populations. And the metapopulation started off with uh, six individuals in 1992 and we now have a managed metapopulation of five hundred and thirty-seven wild cheetahs in areas where they were extirpated historically.
1: And this is where we come to a kind of, uh, you know, almost a philosophical problem within conservation, isn't it? The idea of fencing in areas and sort of a, a walled or fortress approach to conservation, as opposed to a, a sort of landscape approach. Where, where do you sit with that, given your experiences in South Africa?
3: Well, uh, you know, we'll be perfectly honest. The uh, current uh, conservation paradigm is one of coexistence. This is what uh, everybody's aiming for. But here in in Southern Africa, um, we've we've made peace with the fact that uh, long gone are the wide open spaces for wildlife to roam freely. All that we are left with are these uh, small remnant uh, fragments of natural habitat. But those fragments do present an opportunity to reintroduce wild cheetah populations as long as you manage them to ensure genetic health, to prevent inbreeding and to prevent overpopulation or local extinction. The fortress approach is uh, very much frowned upon uh, because it's viewed as almost an apartheid approach to conservation where essentially you fence humans out unless they are paying tourists coming in. So it's not a a popular approach, but as we've seen from unfenced populations, you know, the fortress approach certainly works. And an unfortunate reality with the continent of Africa in uh, the next 100, 200 years is that we're going to have more human population growth. In fact, the African population is projected to uh, triple in the next 200 years. And uh, there's going to be more economic development, more roads and more railways and more bridges and more urbanisation and more agriculture. So we've made peace with the fact that these are the realities of 21st century Africa. So so for now, while we go through these growing pains, while we go through this economic development we fence what we have, we protect those remnant fragments of biological diversity that we have. And eventually, once we've raised people out of poverty in Africa, then the fences come down. Now, Sarah, you work with cheetahs and conservation
1: in a different part of their range. How does your approach towards conservation differ?
2: So I see natural cheetah populations as part of their evolutionary history. So if you're really going to think about Wild cheetahs, as they've evolved, as they've historically been part of ecosystems, you really have to think about these large landscapes where cheetahs can roam freely, where females can choose the mates they want to mate with and have their cubs with. And you've got these natural behaviours completely manifest in these systems. So I take approach which very much focus on these large remaining landscapes where cheetahs still live. And there are substantial areas which still support cheetahs, um, Southern Africa, Botswana, Namibia. Zambia, that whole landscape across the sort of core of southern Africa is is really important for wild cheetah. There's around about 3,500 cheetahs living in that area, adult cheetahs. And then another really important landscape is in northern Tanzania, southern Kenya, around about 1,200 adult cheetahs live across the Serengeti-Savo landscape. So these are really archetypal cheetah populations. They live as they've evolved to live alongside other large carnivores in some areas, alongside people in other areas. Part of that approach uh, means that keeping these large landscapes connected. So as Vincent mentioned, um, there's a lot of pressure on land outside protected areas, but it should be possible to keep connectivity and to, to maintain connectivity. If you've got sort of wildlife friendly approaches in habitat in between protected areas so for example we've been working in kafui National Park, um, working to maintain connectivity between Kafuri and the larger Kaza landscape, which means that you'll then have Cheetah in Kafuri National Park still connected across the, the wider landscape. And a lot of this work means working with communities, working with zoning plans. It's very intricate, it's very complex work, but it is the key to developing long-term sustainable systems where cheetah and people are able to live together it is challenging and there's a lot of challenges that we face but if we were to put in the money that we put into fencing programs you could do a lot of support for local communities to support living alongside cheetahs
1: are there any other threats that you can sort of throw into the mix here for for cheetahs sarah
2: Yeah, so one major threat that cheetahs face, and they have faced historically as well, is trade. Um, So historically, um, across a lot of Asia, cheetahs were used for hunting. And so that contributed to their extirpation across a lot of areas in Asia. And that was mainly adult cheetahs, because adult cheetahs were thought to be best to use for these hunting parties by um, the aristocracy. But more recently, we're seeing a resurgence in trade for pets, and that's uh, mainly in cheetah cubs. And the main target areas are around the Horn of Africa, going into um, states in the Middle East. But there's also across Africa, there still continues to be trade in, in cheetah skins as well.
1: Now, Vincent, you've previously been involved in cheetah reintroductions in South Africa, Zambia, Mozambique and Malawi, but it's the reintroduction of cheetahs to India over the past year that's perhaps received the most global attention. You've been involved in the supply of African cheetahs to India. Why are these introductions important and how many cheetahs have been involved?
3: Yes, uh, the cheetahs are a historically occurring species in India. It occupied an ecological niche there, which is now uh, vacant. So uh, we are in a privileged position to be able to supply cheetahs for reintroduction. And uh, just at the beginning of this year, we made 12 South African uh, metapopulation cheetahs available for relocation to India. The Namibians made eight of their cheetahs available for relocation. So in total, we took uh, 20 across. They initially settled in very well. Uh, They adapted uh, without troubles to the habitat, to the competing predators, and to the new uh, prey spectrum, the new menu. But where we did pick up problems was with the winter coat issue. So in uh, southern Africa, cheetahs develop a winter coat just before June, July, the coldest time of the winter. And that helps them pull through those cold conditions in southern Africa. But of course, now when we moved them across to the Northern Hemisphere, they developed this winter coat uh, just before the uh, monsoon, the, uh, the hottest and wettest period of the year in India. And unfortunately, these winter coats became infested with external parasites and the cheetahs scratched on their backs and rolled on rocks and, and trees. And this created uh, lacerations, which then became infected with uh, fly strike and uh, meiasis. And eventually we, we started seeing these cheetahs running around with black backs. So for some of the more habituated individuals that came from uh, tourist reserves in, in South Africa and Namibia, uh, we could uh, dart them and treat them. But unfortunately um, at least 10 of the cheetahs that we sent across were extremely wild individuals from very large uh, game reserves in South Africa that had very little exposure to tourist vehicles previously. And, uh, We couldn't get close enough to these cheetahs. We adopted all kinds of techniques to to get closer, including uh, putting a vet on an uh, Indian elephant. And and in fact, that worked on two or three occasions and we managed to save those individuals. But uh, we didn't manage to get seven or eight individuals. And um, uh, we lost uh, three of them to the winter coat issue. And then the other three actually survived and pulled through the monsoon without being uh, darted and treated. And two, unfortunately, moved well beyond the um, protected area and um, were lost to other factors. But yes, um, you know, it has been extremely challenging as all reintroductions are. Um, They're inherently risky. We know from our experience in in South Africa that we had, uh, you know, 26 years of reintroduction failure when we first tried cheetah reintroduction in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And eventually we figured out the recipe. And uh, so we anticipate that... uh, there will be similar growing pains in India, but eventually we'll get it right. And um, hopefully India will uh, initiate a meta-population in Asia. And um, in 20, 30, 40 years' time, we'll see cheetahs back in, in places like the Arabian Peninsula, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Pakistan, and uh, other areas where they occurred historically.
1: So it's still really early days for this reintroduction. But at this stage,
3: what are people's attitudes to cheetah like in India? Yes, so that's been a very interesting experience. Uh, most people in India subscribe to Eastern religions, Hinduism, which is a philosophy of um, custodianship of nature. So so if coexistence is going to work, uh, India would be the place. I mean, they've managed to double their tiger populations to increase their leopard populations, despite the growing human population. In Africa, that's a lot more challenging because... Most people subscribe to the Abrahamic religions, which is the philosophy of human dominion over nature. So God gave us the land to to farm and to increase in number. So so in India, it's, it's, it really was a, a, a wonderful experience to see the people on the ground who are living with the cheetahs. It's been a, a very a positive experience. And we believe that um, we'll win in the end. And uh, hopefully in uh, 30, 40 years' time, We'll have a population of up to 50, maybe 100 wild cheetahs in India. Well,
1: I guess if cheetahs show anything, they show that conservation is never simple or straightforward. You've been listening to Tooth and Claw with cheetah experts Professor Sarah Durant and Vincent van der Merwe. I'm Adam Hart and the producer was Jonathan Blackwell. And you can listen to previous episodes by going to bbcwildservice.com forward slash discovery.
0: County Mayo's Gaelic football team haven't won an All-Ireland Championship since 1951. Mayo got the final so many times.
3: We get this far every year, and we just can't get over the last step. And
0: tales of a priest's curse abound.
3: There's a long queue of excuses.
0: I put it down to the curse, been the only explanation. Amazing Sports Stories investigates the curse of County Mayo. I've seen it firsthand. Listen now by searching for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingspodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Nachrichten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Gehe einfach zu amazon.de slash um noch mehr rund um Fitness und Gesundheit zu lernen. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Akast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. Klingt die Musik in deinen Ohren? Dann geht es dir wie uns. Bei Airbus bauen wir nicht einfach nur Flugzeuge. Wir haben eine Mission, das heute mit dem Morgen zu verbinden. Du willst ein Teil davon werden? Das ist deine Chance. Wir suchen motivierte MitarbeiterInnen in vielen Bereichen. Jetzt bewerben unter airbus.com slash jobs und gemeinsam mit uns abheben. Ready for takeoff?